Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, now that I'm uh, back at home, I want to get back on my schedule. I'll try to do one uh, yard side a week. And uh, the guy in my show announced on Shabbos, he said a, c- a couple of names. And one of them was Rev Herzog. I said, whoa, Rev Herzog, that's an easy one to do. Or at least an interesting one catches my attention. And so I'll share that with you. For those of you who don't know I'm talking about, it, especially if you're yeshivish, uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Alevi Herzog was the chief rabbi of Israel after of Cook. Now, uh, today, the chief rabbi of Israel is no big deal. In fact, I'll bet you a lot of people are listening to this a lot don't even know who the chief rabbi of Israel is. It doesn't even matter to them because it's fallen into a low estate. It's like everything else. It's politics. You know, the two current chief rabbis of Israel are the sons of the previous ones. So, you know, that was what you call merit appointment in Jewish life. <laughs> but, um, on the other hand, uh, the chief rabbi was set up around 1920. First, Rav Cook, who is uh, obviously extremely famous and turned into a cult figure. Interesting to me, Rav Herzog did not do, did, that did not happen to him. So let me talk a little bit what I'm speaking about, because probably many of you don't know, have an idea who I'm speaking of. Rabbi Herzog, Rabbi Yitzhak Herzog was a very unusual person. Uh, he died in 59, so he's born in 1888. So, you know, lived in the First World War, Second World War period. He was the chief rabbi of Israel, see, when Israel became a state, first uh, decade and all that. But that doesn't do justice to it, because um, he was out of the box, and that's what makes him interesting. At least to me, and that is, Herzog was born somewhere in Poland, I think in Lomsha. Uh, you know, to as yeshivish type family. It's the father's a rabbi. But uh, when he was around 10 years old or so, they became part of the great wave of Lithuania and Russian Jews that moved to the West and they came to England. I think his father was a rabbi in the Leeds. And uh, he was a young guy. He's 10 years old, coming from a very lumdisha type environment. Lumdisha had a big yeshiva. Let me get straight. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking to Americans. There's Lumdis and there's Lumdisha. Lumdis is learning. Lumdisha is the name of a city. Okay? There used to be a famous yeshiva in the town called Lumdisha. So there was Lumdis and Lumdisha. But there's not Lumdisha and Lumdis. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so he came from such a background. Now, he was a genius. So from early on, is obviously one of these Eloys. Like he's a real thing. Like really read about photographic memory, very smart, etc., etc., etc. But on the other hand, his father moved to England. Ain't no yeshivas in England, uh, not at that time. Uh, so what he learned at home, and uh, he went to public school, and that's right. And, or you know, when I say public school, probably went to boys Latin. You know, a decent, a good school. And so here's somebody does not who who becomes a famous rabbi does not ever go to yeshiva, is growing up in England, uh, but in the other hand it's the old England it's like the old Baltimore a hundred years ago it's all Eastern European Jews Yiddish all over the place and plenty of religious Jews at that time and plenty coming to Chachamim 
you still had that element, I'll say again, of 100, 120 years ago, where uh, a lot of people came over were, you know, the Balabatim knew how to learn, as they say, from the old days, uh, and uh, found themselves in England, uh, one place or another, for one reason or another. And so if you're a unusual kid growing up, you're not like the other English kids, and you know how to learn, you know, Yiddish, you know how to read a safer, and you know more than that, if your father's a rabbi, he learns with you every day, I'm sure that's what happened. So uh, you're different than the other kids around you, but you can talk to the adults in learning, and that's what he obviously did. Um, he grew up, therefore, I guess between, let's see, in the time of King Edward, so, you know, between 1898 and 1908, figure like that. And he went to uh, college, and uh, I remember he got a, uh, he got an M.A. eventually in France, because what happened was his father eventually got a offer to be the rabbi of the Frumschul in Paris. That's a whole subject by itself. What we're basically talking about over here is the late 1800s. And what happened was the following, very briefly. Uh, let me say this. Tonight, here in Baltimore, Monday night, I'm starting a lecture series, uh, as I do every year, on the three weeks, on some episode in Jewish history that's sad. Because it's three weeks. So I've done many over the years, and this year I'm doing a series called The Russian Pogroms of 1881, Harbinger of Extermination or Blessing in Disguise. And it's six lectures. And it's about the, uh, obviously as the title says, the pogroms that broke out in Russia, which among other things triggered uh, uh, over the course of the next 20 years a mass immigration. So several million Jews leave what you and I call Eastern Europe. And they went to the West, many to America, of course, and many to England and places like that. And also many to France and Germany and other countries in Western Europe. So a ton of Jews moved to Paris, to France, starting in the 1880s. And um, the official French Jewry, what, the Rabbanut they have there, never went exactly uh, conservative reform. But Lamaisa said they were like conservative. That, that's what they were, Lamaisa. So don't be surprised. I mean, you know, many shows have organ. And uh, it, I'll say it again. They never went reform. But uh, they introduced a lot of these Meshuggah and the French changes in order to kiss up to the guy. I see the French Jews where they were uh, overly obsequious. Uh, the French Jews are the subject of a famous essay by the famous Zionist writer, Achana Am, who was atheist. Uh, a chart cover chassid who became an atheist. And Achana uh, called Avdus Betocheros, slavery within freedom. In other words, you French Jews think you're free and you are technically liberated. That is to say, you have equal citizenship with the others, but you always... Bending our backwards to show how French you are. So the Russian Jews who moved there didn't like to go to those kind of shows. And so they ended up making a, a known like mini Kayla. The French rich, richy, rich Jews were so freaked out that the Russian Jews will have a bunch of small stables that'll be unappetizing looking and smelling and all the rest. And they actually kicked in money for the from community, the Russian Jews, to build a large synagogue. I forget what street it's on. Hisaktus uh, Akahilis. And this rabbi hurts it with the rabbi there. So, uh, this young guy growing up in Leeds and then in, in Paris. And he went to college in Paris. That's where he did his, uh, MA, uh, on the Trelis, dying of purple in ancient Israel. Uh, which already goes to show you, he wants to use his, uh, secular knowledge to understand Torah topics. Because the big question is, is there Trelis nowadays? And 
Uh, I'm no expert on that. I've never been interested in that subject. But uh, I know enough to know that the famous Radzina Rebbe, the Hasidic Rebbe, earlier in the 1800s, has said he found the Tchelis somewhere in Italy, and he, it was all messed up. It turned out it was wrong. And Herzog, you know, who was interested in marine biology, among many other subjects. Now, this is a guy, uh, I'll give the story away. He ends up knowing Hoshas and everything. I mean, Babli, Yushalmi, the whole nine yards, everything. And one of the great Gedolim. But at the same time, he had college education. And, uh, he, and he was interested in science and every other, every other subject. And he does his MA thesis on a tchelis, which he identified with a certain type of, uh, snail, which today is the one they say, those who hold from tchelis say is the real one. So, uh, I just think you're a very unusual guy. Didn't go to yeshiva, uh, knows everything. Obviously, you can't know everything without chazring over Shas, Babi, Shami, Tezefta, Mechil, Tezifra, Rishonim, Achronim, over and over again. And somehow, well, there is at the same time, also, you know, doing, taking multiple degrees in, in college, because I remember he did his, uh, MA in, in Paris, in the Sorbonne. That's the Tchelis thing. But he also did a law, uh, PhD, believe it or not, in, in University of London, around like 1914 or whatever. So, uh, this is one smart dude. And, uh, then it's already the First World War. And, uh, he got married in London to the daughter of a big Talmud Chacham. Talk about it a little bit later. And then he was a rabbi in Northern Ireland, the part that belongs to England, Belfast. So, like, in the first years of the First World War, he was a rabbi in Belfast. And then he was a rabbi in Dublin. Now, you got to understand, Belfast and Dublin, in the years I'm talking about, which is the First World War and the aftermath, that's the years of, uh, what's the guy's name? Not Tom Collins, that's a drink. Uh, Michael Collins, that's it. The, uh, you probably don't have any idea what I'm talking about. These are the terrorists who made the Irish Republic. Heyman de Valera and, and, and Michael Collins. This is the era of Mamish the terrorism which they forced the English out of Ireland. Um, the books and movies and things like this all about it. The IRA, right? You've heard of the IRA. Sinn Fein. So this is a heck of a time to be a rabbi in Ireland. But guess what? A bunch of Jews, about 5,000, moved to Dublin. And, uh, that's right, in the middle of Dublin. And, uh, Dublin became the capital of what they called the Irish Free State. Like a certain, uh, Chalik of the British Empire is too complicated to go into now. But there were shootings and crazy things going on all the time. And this guy becomes the Rav of the Jewish community in Dublin, which Lamaisa means they become the chief rabbi of Ireland. Ireland became a new country around 1920, uh, after all the fighting with the British. And, uh, Therefore, he becomes, uh, let's put it this way, poster boy for Irish nationalism because um, there were 5,000 Litvish Jews in uh, Dublin. That, me- that made a Jewish neighborhood. 5,000 is a lot. It's not huge, but it's a lot. Uh, Ireland was weird. There are no Jews anywhere else, hardly. But in one packed area were shuls and this and that and the other, and uh, they chose him as the rabbi, and I don't blame him uh, because, first of all, he's a, a, a gone, a young guy. Second of all, uh, he had a PhD, and third of all, he had a mastery of languages, and so he learned Gaelic, you know, which the brand new language of Ireland better than the Irish did, and uh, he was able to win the favor of uh, the Irish, which was very good for the Jewish community. 
Let me put it this way. When Ireland became a state, it was totally Catholic. But they were bending over backwards to show that they're not totally Catholic and they're totally uh, tolerant in order to get sympathy for the struggle against England. Otherwise, England would say, why should Ireland become a state? They're going to bring in the Inquisition, you know, be totally Catholic. So the Irish said, no, 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 we're Catholic, but we're very tolerant and everybody has equal rights. And look, here's the chief rabbi, he's Jewish, Orthodox Jew, uh, a Talmud scholar, and he's treated with the biggest covenant. And I remember he went to America um, on behalf of the Irish Republic, uh, you know, which, which won him a lot of favor, you know, on a speaking tour, so it won him a lot of favor among the Goyim as well as among the Jews. So he's a great man in this particular regard. And uh, there's a very famous joke. I remember years ago that, uh, how's it go? He came to New York and he was introduced by Jimmy Walker, the famous playboy who was the mayor of, of New York of yesteryear. Uh, who said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I have a story to tell you. Once upon a time, there was a Jew and an Irishman, which is how a lot of stories used to begin. There's a Jew and an Irishman, and here he is. <laughs> uh, they introduced Rabbi Herzog. Now, at the same time, the guy knew, like, Kola Kula. So he's a young, relatively young man, 1888, and I'm talking about there in his 30s, and he has a huge, uh, uh, you know, growing reputation. Um, Dinkar Yeshiva, he got picked up Smich, I don't know where, you know, somewhere along the way, but that doesn't mean anything. His father's a big uh, rabbi also. And uh, he would have been perfect, in my opinion, for chief rabbi of England. Maybe he's a little too from, but uh, the PhD from English University he had, he could speak English very well, he could speak probably 10, 12 languages. I'm serious. And this is a very unusual guy. Now, here comes the interesting, I mean, all this, here comes an interesting part. How did I, how did me, myself and I, how did I encounter Rabbi Herzog decades ago when I was much younger? When he was the chief rabbi of Ireland, so obviously he gives speeches, gives shiurim to individual students and things like that, but uh, where is the chance for you to use what you got? You know, yeah, not too much room in no yeshivas in Ireland. Uh, so he undertook, because he had the law degree and a philosophy degree or something like that, uh, to uh, put out in English a uh, five-volume work, which we called The Main Institutions of Jewish Law, which are amazing, published in the 1930s, in which he undertakes to explain all the principles, what you and I would call Chosha Mishpat, from the point of view of a law professor. And I remember reading this when I was much younger, and he calls it, I was like, whoa, because he'll explain all the principles of Jewish law. Let me give you an example. Kenyan. Yush, Shibud, uh, you know, uh, things like that. And, uh, you know, uh, Asmachta, all, all kind of ideas out there in Lambdas, uh, in a legalistic way, meaning like a law professor does it. No, I'm not finished. But not like these 99.9% of all the other scholars of my youth. They couldn't learn to save their lives. And so if they quote a line in the Talmud, it shows you that they're, they think they're not to learn. He's bringing down the, it's all in English, mind you, the Kitsos, the Nasivis, the Orsameach, uh, <laughs> the Machna Frayim, all within a brilliant exposition. I'll tell you, it's a masterwork. And you should read it today. If you're listening to this podcast and you're inspired by what I said, you'll go out there and find... Now they sell it in, uh, you know, in, in bookstores. Uh, Rabbi Herzog's Main Institutions of Jewish Law. Unfortunately, he only finished two volumes because uh, at a, it would have finished five if it would have stayed in Ireland. However came in the 1930s, 
and while he's writing these things, we must have given him a university lecture or something like that because they're written in a very clear and organized way. You can learn a, let me put it this way, you can learn a lot from reading his English book. <laughs> uh, but what happened was Rav Cook died, and they were looking for a successor. This is 1935 or so, and he got elected, uh, which is amazing because, uh, well, it's not that amazing. Let's put it this way. He was a Mizrahi. He was a Zionist. Um, anybody living in Western Europe, no, nah, that's not true what I'm saying, but a lot of people living in Western Europe would support Zionism, even though they would do it from a firm perspective, you know, like the Mizrahi style and all the rest of it. He was not a Gota type at all, uh, which was held against him by the uh, Gota types. But uh, he was, as I say, uh, you know, sympathetic with Zionism and all the rest of it. And uh, the result is that the Yishuv in Eretz Yisrael in Palestine, which is, you know, the Ben-Gurion era, excuse me, in the 1930s, they wanted the successor of Cook because the Jewish community had set up under the British mandate in Palestine, the British were ruling their own court system of religious courts. Now, this is something the British wanted to set up. It's left over from the Turks. The British took over Palestine, as you know, I'm sure, after the first world war from the Turks. The Turks had ruled it for 400 years. The Turks ran everything based on religion. Your identity is your religion. This is a Jew. This is a Christian. This is a Muslim. They didn't say this guy's a French Jew or something like that. He's a Jew. Any more than they say this guy's an Arab Muslim or a Syrian Muslim or something. He's a Muslim. So it's defined in religion, which means that they kept the old-fashioned Jewish way of autonomous course of communities. The Basins had koach. And even when the British took over, and they wouldn't give the Basin the power like, to beat somebody up I don't know, for, you know, be Michal Shabbos, but they left a considerable amount of power in the hands of the Basins, specifically marriage and divorce, things like that. And uh, without going into all the details, it take too long, in 1920 or so, the British did pass a law uh, giving legal power to a rabbinut system headed by a chief rabbi and, a, and an appeals court and the Supreme Court. And this was running in Israel down to the current day, uh, which is why from that time on until the current day, you can't get officially married in Israel if you don't do a kedasa kedin. Uh, it's got to be done by a rabbi. There's no such thing as a, as a justice of the peace in Israel. Not yet. There's no such thing as a civil marriage uh, like you have in America in Israel. Not yet. They still run by the uh, by by the rabbis, by the halacha. So uh, Rav Cook is the one who set this up. Uh, the Aguda, by the way, said they don't hold from it, but now they kind of use it. Uh, when Rav Cook died in '35, so the question is, who's going to be the next chief rabbi of Israel? It's got to be a Zionist. It's got to be a big Hamachacham. Um, there were two candidates mainly in the 1930s. One was Rav Cook's assistant. His number two man, Rabbi Harlop, who was a great Talmud and a big Tzaddik, uh, and super Zionist, beyond, you know, super Mizrahi, super duper duper. That's, but he had no secular education. Then he had this younger guy, who was uh, 40 years old, Rabbi Herzog, who uh, had a PhD. He was also a big Talmud Chacham. Well, he won. Uh, many were afraid if he's got a college degree, maybe he's not from. That's how people thought in those days. And, uh, Listen to this. It's all who you know. Rabbi Herzog was the son-in-law of a big rabbi in England. That rabbi in England was a Talmud Mubak of Chaim Eiser, Krasinski and Vilna. His name was Hillman, Shmuel Hillman. And 
so his father-in-law wrote to Reb Chaim Moser, you know, put in a word for my son. Let's put it this way. If Reb Chaim Moser gives an action on this guy's uh, orthodoxy, what are you going to say? If that's what happened. Uh, even the Chazanish, believe it or not, who'd moved recently in Palestine, support him. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why, but anyway, but that's what happened. So he got elected the second chief rabbi of Israel. Now, this to me is something you could talk about for two hours, because Rav Herzog was brilliant and a genius, but like I said before, he didn't develop the fan base. The Rav Cook does. You know, you go to Israel today, even around the world, people are into cook mix, right? They're not so Rav Cook, this, that, and the other. And uh, you don't find it ever for Rav Herzog. He, he had a scholar's personality. He didn't have this, uh, I don't know what's the right word, this charismatic magnetism, apparently, that Rav uh, Cook had. It's uh, very interesting. Uh, but on the other hand, let's put it this way. He was a bar hockey. He knew how to learn better than anybody. So it's a, f- a bunch of funny stories. When he arrived in Palestine, you can bet your bottom dollar, all these real frummies in Yerushalayim, Benny Brock, all the rest, they say, ah, a guy with college, what does he know? You know, they just took him because it's a Zionistish business and the Zionist, and uh, it's all, uh, you know, uh, we're in politics and all the rest of it. Until you start talking to him and learning. <laughs> you know, that was the end of that. So, and there are many stories along. I'm not going to take the time to go into all the Maiselach. But it's very interesting. And he set himself up in, uh, in Yerushalayim. The fact that he could speak English, which the other rabbis couldn't do because he had an education in England, uh, it was a big help. The fact that he had a, a university degree, he's Rabbi Dr. Herzog, was a big help. And at the same time, you know, all the big Rabbanim Yerushalayim, I'm talking about Mr. Zalman Meltzer, you know, the, the Tukhachinsky, all the big rabbis in Israel, and the, and the up-and-coming ones, like Roshlom Zalman who was a young guy, they all sound like, wow, this Rabbi Herzog is amazing. Um, anybody out there who's into learning, uh, I'll say this. When I was, there's his father-in-law, Rabbi Hillman, was a uh, rabbi in a dayan in London uh, in the early part of the 20th century. I have a nice cartoon I'm looking to hang up in my house about the London Basin. It's a kind of interesting. But anyway, and then then he retired. You go get a pension. And he moved to Yerushalayim. And he wrote a, a, this seven-volume business, which I picked up many years ago when I was very young, called Ori Yashar. And, it's, uh, and the uh, beauty of the set is He's got something on every Dauphin Shas. Right? So over the years, if I ever needed something, look something up, one of the places you look at a classic cheetah place is the Ori Yosher. Because whatever Dauphin you're on, uh, he'll have something to say. Maybe something you can use, maybe something you can't use. Or he'll give you sources, Omar Macomas. Uh, say he was one of those Shas people. Uh, in the Or Yosher, again, this is the final of Herzog. In the Or Yosher, I remember when you get to the sections of Kachim, he has this huge... Stuff there, you know, like pages and pages of chidushim and heavy-duty lambdas on uh, kachim material, uh, chulin, zvachim, and achas from his son-in-law, from Herzog. <laughs> so anybody wants to get an acquaintance with his style of lambdas, which is pretty heavy, you look at the Yasha and the kachim parts. Um, so I'm just telling you that. Anyway, Rav Herzog was the rabbi when the World War II started. And uh, he tried his best to save the yeshivas. Uh, he was friends with the President of Ireland uh, because he made his business be friends with the President of Ireland, who was a very famous Irishman called Eamon de Valera. He's a very controversial figure, but he was the President of Ireland for 20, 30 years. And uh, because he was friends with Herzog, so he wasn't anti-Semitic and all that, at least he didn't let on, 
and um, he tried to say, well, Ireland taking the, the, the you see boys running away to the Chicago girls, but you know, it didn't work. Uh, because at the end of the day, the Jews are alone. All your friends left you in the lurch during the 30s and 40s. All the Fairweather friends, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Roosevelt, <laughs> Churchill, all the others. When Tanji, the Jews got shafted, nobody really did anything. So, uh, but he gave it his best shot. And he traveled to the United States of America in 1940, or in the 41, to see Franklin Roosevelt, to see if he could get him to let in all these Shiva boys into America. It did not work, believe it or not. Now, how did he get him to see Roosevelt? Uh, as I said, his father-in-law, Rob Herzog's father-in-law, was Ralph Hillman. He was a famous Tamakacham. Ralph Hillman had a cousin who had gone to Slobodka, but then became totally not from him, became a Bundist, and then moved to America and became head of the national unions. Uh, Sidney Hillman is a famous name if you know your American history, especially the New Deal. Sidney Hillman was like a very high union official at the time of Roosevelt, like, uh, you know, at the, at, the, at the top of the top. And uh, so Sidney Hillman got him to see Roosevelt. But Roosevelt gave him the time of day, you know, and he shot the bull with him. And he would not give any kind of commitment to help anybody from or help anybody Jewish. Uh, it was a very bitter disappointment for Ralph Herzog. Uh, it doesn't surprise us who know about Roosevelt, but it, it surprised him. Uh, he must have thought with his charm he'd be able to convince Roosevelt, but it didn't work. And then Ralph Herzog said, I'm returning to Israel. Well, they said, don't go back to Israel. This is 1941. Uh, it's before America entered the war. The Germans are winning. The British were losing. They're getting closer to Palestine. They might break in and kill everybody. And he didn't care. He took a boat across the Atlantic. Uh, as a famous story, he was supposed to take the Robin Moore famous ship. But at the last minute, for some reason, he changed uh, ships. And uh, the Robin Moore is a famous story with the Germans sank it uh, off the coast of Africa. Uh, but he got to South Africa, and then he flew to Israel, Palestine, right when Rommel was there. No, when, the, when the Germans were right at the door... And it's a very famous thing. People say, how can you go back? And he said um, that in the Torah tradition, there are two Corbins. This is Rishon, this is Shani. You know, it's nice I'm saying this. Now I'm, t- I'm saying this podcast right after Shavuaz and Batamas. It's the middle of three weeks. It says, it's, this is what Herzog said. When he risked his life, I mean, he put his <laughs> he put his life where, he, where, 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 where his mouth is. He said, I'm returning to Eretz Yisrael because I know he's not going to be a third Corbin. Our sages talk about two Hurbans and not a third. There's even a Medrash he quoted. I think it was Kashani Shacholti Shacholti. You know, when Yaakov says to, uh, who is it? Yehuda, take, uh, Binyama, don't take Binyama. Shacholti Shacholti. I, 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 I'm mourning twice. So there's a Medrash that says, there's a Baisrishan, Baisini, but there's no third Hurban. So he believed that enough to say, I'm coming back to Israel, even though the German army's next door. It will not happen. And of course, in the end, the Germans were defeated. But, you know, at that time, people didn't know it. So he was a courageous guy. He's very interesting in this regard. Um, and he spent the war trying to do these hustle things, but nothing, nothing worked. As we know, nothing substantial worked. Uh, and he got involved with the politics. You know, that's when the Mizrahi and the Agoda started fighting like cats and dogs. It's very sad. The war was going on, and they're all uh, f- fighting with each other. Uh, I'm sorry to say. And when the war was over, he went to Europe to try to save, let me rephrase this, to try to pick up kids who 
people in monasteries and Christian homes and things like that. He even met with the Pope and others. The big push at the end of the war was obviously to get Israel. Number two, to save the Sheriff Plata. Number three, to recover kids who had, so to speak, been taken from their parents and they weren't giving them back. And he was very active in that sort of thing. Uh, this was the real hot solo work. And then, of course, Israel became a state, um, as I think everybody knows. And uh, he became the first chief rabbi of Israel. As the chief rabbi of Israel, he actually wrote up a constitution. You know, the guy was, had a legal degree besides everything else. And so he could write a constitution up. And it's been published recently called Hatukha. That's the Hebrew word for from Chok. Hatukha is not Israel. And I remember I bought it a number of years ago. I read it once, but it was like a ten. All of his stuff is very lumbish. And he says, so we'll have a theocracy. Saudi Arabia has a theocracy. Big deal. <laughs> Go say that today. Um, especially a guy from college, college background. So, uh, you know, his. Let me put it this way. Israel today, you may not know this, does not have a constitution. Uh, and it's probably a good thing. But, uh, you know, they never could have enough agreement on fundamentals in Israel to make a constitution up. Between the from, the not from, this group, left, the right, up and down. So uh, his idea didn't go anywhere. The modern state of Israel, is, for the first 10 years he was a chief rabbi, but then he was getting old. And he got, uh, you know, sick over the years. Uh, so you can see pictures of him online. Like the attending, uh, you know, the Panovish, uh, dedication of the, of the campus and all that. But once the state of Israel came into being, you also started the Kanoim. And a lot of people used to knock him at this one, this and that and the other. Because he's a Zionist, because he went to Medina. I don't remember all the stories, but a lot of sordid stories that they wouldn't let him speak at a, at a funeral or something like that. And then they wouldn't let him come at a, uh, some dedication. I don't remember exactly. The problem is, he couldn't beat him in learning, and he was a tzaddik, and he's the type of guy who used to give a lot of money away. Uh, he was ni- nice, you know what I'm saying? Give money away to the poor. He really was that type. Uh, <laughs> I remember the, there was a refugee doctor <laughs> who, you know, was a German who made it to Israel, an MD, but couldn't make a go of it, and he had no patience and all this. And Ralph Herzog would call him in and say, oh, I feel sick, and he'd give him a whole checkup and say, you're fine. Then he called him in a month later, you know, and you're fine. Now the reason is he wanted to pay him. Get it? It was a, it was a way of, of, you know, giving him a, a payment for a visit. But the guy told the rabbit, and he says, "Your husband is suffering from severe hypochondria." <laughs> he was too stupid to yak it. You know, he was too stupid to realize that the guy was actually giving him charity. Uh, so he's a very interesting person in this in this regard, but at the same time, a kind of a failure. Because he didn't finish the five volumes, which would have made his name, uh, you know, huge. Uh, he didn't publish anything significant. They have some chubas of his, Hechel Yitzhak. I never found it. I don't know why. It, that tells you something. They were published like in the 50s. And he's got an important sucking. Let me tell you something. He was there in the 40s and 50s. So he was one of the big people who had to deal with the Oguna question. You tell me about the Oguna situation after World War II, baby. Right? You, you understand what I'm talking about? You know, the husband and wife were in the concentration camps, and then uh, the husband's not coming back. Is he dead? Is he not dead? Uh, the ter- you know, the terrible uh, aftermath of World War II. He dealt with a lot of sh- big shilas when the state of Israel came into being. Uh, but already by then, you know, well, let's put it this way. The Haredi world doesn't care what he says. They went into what Chazanish says. I mean, that's the politics of it. 
And uh, I think it's therefore kind of a disappointing life because for a person had all of his gifts. This is interesting to me. A person had all his gifts and huge knowledge. And really, I don't know anybody like him in the 20th century. You understand? Meaning, I don't know anybody who was as big a gone in all areas, uh, who, who occupied a position, the chief rabbinate of the most important uh, place, Eretz Yisrael, <coughs> um, a person with a, a very solid secular education, uh, very eloquent and all that sort of thing. He carried himself with a lot of dignity. You see pictures of him with the, with the top hat, always very well dressed and with a silver cane, you know, so he's impressed the guy him. Uh, and uh, he didn't get any following. You know, it's a, it's a funny business. He didn't get a big following. He's not Rav Cook. Uh, Rav Cook's books are constantly reprinted. The person I never see reprinted, uh, or hardly, anyway, Rav Cook has a million biographies. I think Rav Herzog has maybe one. I have it. It's a Yachid Bedero. Um, it, it, it's kind of funny. I don't think he had this passionate, what's the right word, uh, you know, charismatic personality, which for better or worse is what turns people on. He was a tremendous scholar, a person of great, he had all the milas, you know, he was, he was kind, he was good, uh, he helped people, uh, uh, he could give a shear better than anybody, but he, he didn't have a yeshiva. In the 20, in the mid 20th century, first half of the 20th century, he was alive, uh, the main people, that emerge as important figures in the firm world of the Rosh Hashivas, not uh, the rabbis. It's uh, it's it's quite uh, interesting in that regard. Um, he was a person who spent all his life in the rabbinate, because I guess that's the background he came from. If a guy like that would have started yeshiva, especially with his English and Hebrew background, it would have been probably uh, amazing. But uh, instead, he went around in Israel and from yeshiva, yeshiva gave a shiurim. But uh, you know. He didn't. He didn't occupy the type of uh, occupational role that uh, turns out to be the one that, in the non-Hasidic world, gets the most traction and charisma in the course of the 20th century. That's why I bet you a lot of people listening to me now are saying, "Who's this Rabbi Herzog?" That he's talking about. I don't know if I've done uh, justice to him. As you see, I'm very interested. But uh, he's a fascinating personality, and maybe as a result of what I said. You will be moved to, uh, you know, read some of his books, especially the English ones you could read, if you got the head for it. And, uh, especially the one, not the Tchelis one, the one on the main institutions of Jewish law, I found very interesting, very, uh, remarkable. Uh, again, you know, cause he's got all the Roshan and there in, that you wouldn't ordinarily see in an English book, at least when I was growing up. And, uh, he has a total command of all the subject matter, as you can see. He was a good speaker. Uh, if you look online, you can find here and there some speeches he gave. Like, I remember one about Sukkah, someone about Dar Samach, you know, he's a good orator, like a rabbi part. But at the end of the day, the rabbis don't get the big traction, do they? And it's also true that being the chief rabbi in Israel means you're also connected with all the bureaucracy and all the politics and all the schmutz. So, the chief rabbi of Israel is a very in- interesting institution. Rav Cook was on a huge height. Of Herzog was a little less than him, but also a huge height. After I've heard Herzog, you don't think the chief rabbis of Israel are not people that are so hugely inspiring or anything like that. It's a disappointing office. Uh, there are reasons for it, of course, but, uh, but that's the way it turned out. So, the two big chief rabbis in the history of Israel, the, everybody has to be motor were huge, uh, Gaonim and all the rest of it, is Rav Cook and Rav Herzog. Rav Cook did not go to college and was not that sort of thing. 
and Rav Herzog was that. Um, anyway, that's enough for now. I've, I've gone over my usual time limit anyway. Um, so good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.